Hello and welcome to episode two of Experimental Practice. I'm your host, Sila Radovsky, joined in this episode by Sila Satterstrom. A few weeks ago, when summer was just popping to life, it was a beautiful, sunny May morning, I had the honor of speaking with Sila about her writing, literary form, divination, and their relationships with uncertainty. Sila is the author of five books, the novels, The Pink Institution, The Meat and Spirit Plan, and Slab, and the essay collections, Ideal Suggestions, and Rancher. If you're not yet familiar with her work, you're in for a treat. You have some really vibrant, beautiful, one-of-a-kind reading to possibly look forward to. Sila teaches and lectures across the United States and has long been faculty in the University of Denver's English and Literary Arts program. Along with Kristen Nelson, Sila is also co-founder of Four Queens, a platform celebrating divination and divinatory poetics. Sila is just an incredible, generous community presence in the realms of innovative literary form and divinatory practice, and especially the places where those realms meet. I've long been a fan of her writing, and more recently, I've had the privilege of getting to know Sila a bit through Four Queens events and offerings. Sila's insights mentorship, and creative perspective always feel to me to open up space and possibility. She teaches about divinatory practice, um, in particular tarot, in a way way that feels really contiguous with creative practice and strategies for gracefully navigating the uncertainty of um, bringing form to it. Um, She shares tools and means for shedding light on what's unspoken, what's there but not yet articulated, and the subjects of our conversation are located in those junctures between the invisible and the drive to bring things to light, to articulate, and also the means and mediums we use to do so, including but not limited to literary form. Um, And Sila describes this crossroads so beautifully as a shimmering scene where form and content meet. I'm also always very curious about the quotidian elements of being a writer, um, of writing, and the trajectories of those I admire, and Sila will be sharing about that as well. Um, And if you stick around till the end, we do round things out with some divination. Welcome, Sila. I'm so excited to be having this conversation with you. And I wanted to open up by asking you to describe your creative practice and its relationship to divination. Like, I think often the question that's posed is like, how did these things come together? But I think maybe the question is sort of how have these things always been entwined Mm. and in relationship perhaps coming from a similar place so just opening up by um describing your your practices and Mm. the relationships to each other Mm. well silo thank you so much for the opportunity to be in conversation with you we it's a privilege to be asked thoughtful questions and i am just delighted on this beautiful spring day to be chatting with you. Um, What a great question. You know, I say a lot and jokingly that the longer I teach creative writing workshops and the longer I teach divination and I teach both, the less I can tell the difference. And, and, and it's, that's really true. Um, You know, I would say, so for me, it is, I think the two are intertwined and I, I really think of divination almost as a hermeneutic approach. It is a commitment to a certain type of awareness to position yourself toward the text in a certain sort of way as a reader of, of books, of the world, of cards, of dynamics. And um, so divination for me feels almost like a position to occupy in the universe. And it's also, of course, a craft. Um, 
think that like hard readings and poems for me come from the same place, the same field. And so I feel that they have a lot of kind of crossover and dovetailing um, in that regard. Um, yeah, so um, I would say that I think that where I sense creative writing and divination overlapping, first and foremost, is in an agreement to practice awareness. You know, writing and divination are these privatized events, but it's also about being in the world in a certain way as one who reads. So yeah, so I don't know. I'll stop there. Those are some initial thoughts to your great question. And there's much more I'm sure to say, but yeah. yeah that's that's beautiful. Um, in terms of your trajectory as both a writer and a reader of the world and of cards, um, what do you feel like, like have there been any particularly impactful turning points or moments of um perhaps standing at a crossroads mm. i mean that's what what a great question there have definitely been um moments um in my life that have punctured all the layers and and made a great impact in terms of my relationship to narrative and divination is a narrative art mm-hmm. So, you know, and I can, I can think of certain instances, the, the death of usually death actually, and um, death and trauma, (laughs) Um, but, but not always, you know, I will never forget the first time I touched my cards after my daughter was born, you know, so, so, you know, divination, the cards, it's like, it's almost like a way of like, um, (laughs) it's a, it's its own kind of diary. It's, um, its presence is always with me. So, you know, I, I can, it's all of the impactful moments have nuanced me and therefore made me a more nuanced reader. Mm-hmm. And um, so that, that's what feels true for me around that question. Yeah. Were you, when you started to inhabit academic um, and literary sort of institutions and establishments um, was, uh, yeah, where, where did those kind of entwined practices, like, how did you navigate their interconnections when entering into those establishments? And also perhaps at a more kind of concrete level, like what has your trajectory been through those institutions as a writer and as a human? Thank you for that question. So, um, yes, gosh, there's lots to say. I'll try to be efficient. Um, And again, thanks for the question. So, you know, when I came into academics, um, I didn't really have a narrative of of what I thought it might be like. And I will say it's been a hard learning curve for me. Yeah. understanding how I calibrate to the institution, understanding too very clearly clearly the ways I benefit have benefited from it. Mm-hmm. And figuring out how all of these kind of um, aspects of my identity intersect in the space of the institution, which you know the thing about academics, is it's it's perhaps because people tend to experience it as a vocational experience their identities are very wrapped up <laughs> in in their in their profession and their work um but anyway um so i it's been a learning curve and so i had this june i will have been in denver i came here 18 years ago this june to work at du and I was fortunate because not long after I came here, Ann Waldman really changed my life just by coming into my life as a presence, um, as a goddess, as a mentor, as a as a as a friend. And she, of course, is running the summer writing program at Naropa. And she invited me to teach summer workshops. 
Um, and so I immediately just the, the started teaching divinatory poetics. That's what it was called. And I did that. I refined that workshop every summer. And then in time, it just naturally began to interrupt my DU classroom. And so I began to teach graduate classes in divinatory poetics. Um, and so, you know, and I will say the 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 longer I have persisted in the institution, the less I have been concerned about controlling how my identity is perceived, which is probably always a losing battle. Um, <laughs> because, you know, I think I had anxiety as a young academic that these interests, these proclivities, these obsessions, these gifts um, would be taken as a, a lack of sign of a lack of rigor, you know, and that sort of thing. So I had all this conditioning and um, that I've had to deconstruct. <laughs> I've had to examine my relationship with the institution. Um, and I, I am at a place now where it's like, I just ever am moving towards just teaching what I want. <laughs> Um, but also my relationship with the institution is always changing. Um, so, yeah. I think one thing that's super fascinating to me about your background is that you also have a background in philosophy or religious studies or, or both. I don't know if I'm um, correct mm -hmm. there, but you did extensive doc, um, like pre doc you almost have a PhD or you have a PhD. I'm not quite sure um, what that trajectory is, but you made us uh, kind of split towards the literary arts as itself a critical medium. So there's that element of divination and creative writing, but also um, creative forms as a form of kind of critical engagement with the world. Mm -hmm. So I'm yeah. curious, I'm curious to hear a little bit more about how those have been enmeshed? Yes, thank you for the question. So I did my undergraduate degree at Millsaps College, a small liberal arts college in Mississippi, in religious studies. Mm -hmm. And there met Dr. Mark Ledbetter, who, who was doing, had written a book on Toni Morrison, and he came in um, to religious studies, and he was a hermeneutics guy. And he just uh, was just a, you know, um, a very activating force in my educational trajectory mm -hmm. and being introduced to hermeneutics and just feeling like this is the thing. And, you know, hermeneutics is that discipline that kind of exists between um, religious studies, um, divinity um, practices and philosophy. And so he... Um, really introduced me to, to contemporary hermeneutics and put me in touch with Dr. David Jasper, who was the dean um, of the School of Divinity at the University of Glasgow in Scotland and was running a program at the time called the Postmodern Center for the Study of Literature and Theology. And it was this kind of extraordinary program, this think tank, this experiment this um, international um, group of scholars. And so I went there and did a master's degree um, with my focus on hermeneutics. And, um, and then after that began my PhD work also through the University of Glasgow um, after a break and a discernment process. And, um, and so I got to the ABD phase um, of things. And when I was writing the PhD, I was going through this thing where before I could turn in a critical chapter, <laughs> I remember this one particular meeting, um, before I could turn in a critical chapter to my, to my director, Dr. David Jasper, wonderful, incredible scholar and um, mentor and director, I would have to write really terrible, awful short stories 
And they always feature Jesus having sexual misadventures. And so here, you know, bless him, this man reading these very raunchy stories about Jesus. And then after we got that out of the way, we could talk about the critical chapter. But I had this extremely intense need to work out my theological concerns creatively. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it, even a desire to privilege that before talking about the, the critical work. So I took a break from my PhD work. Um, I was in the writing phase, the di- you know um, drafting the dissertation phase. Anyway, in that gap, I ended up writing my first novel. And that first, no- I ended up studying with Rebecca Brown at Goddard College, and um, my wrote my first novel. And that novel kind of set a trajectory. Um, and you know, it was published almost 20 years ago. So this was a while ago. Um, and that led me to teaching creative writing and applying to this job at the university of Denver (laughs) and coming here. And so, um, you know, for a long time, you know, I would get letters like, are you going to finish? You know, I'm just (laughs) the pause and this kind of, life bloomed inside that gap. Um, so that's my academic trajectory. That's so, so fascinating. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, that's, that's all, yeah, that's just to give you a sense of the trajectory, if that's interesting, I don't know. No, that's fascinating. I think in part because something that I want to ask you about as well is literary form and its construction. And I see in that pairing of those raunchy short stories with your critical chapters it's almost like a a precursor to your your novels have such dynamic range in terms of their mm-hmm. form and i feel like you you have this amazing ability to sort of hew closely to what the material wants rather than using this preconstructed shape or narrative arc so I want to I want to ask you about that as well, um, but that's really interesting to sort of see how it's almost like a need to process these things to in relationship to each other, the critical mm-hmm. writing and the creative forms, and how the creative form becomes a vehicle of critical inquiry, but also one that can be uh, much more holistic mm-hmm. and sort of honoring the nature of the material. It was the it was the medium, the tool, the genre, whatever, however we want to think of it, the way <laughs> for me personally to best embody and work out and work through my critical concerns. And perhaps because of creative writing's engagement with uncertainty and um, and my experience of that as a writer. Um but, you know, I love this question. I love forms. I love literary forms. And I am very, you know, kind of just at a very steady um, pace have been obsessed with a shimmering scene where form and content meet that, you know, particular crossroads and um, and all that goes into that. And I will say that the forms that I typically work with in my books, they eventually arrive out of a sense of necessity, um, necessity and experimentation (laughs) um, kind of. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, I think that like when I think back to writing those raunchy stories while doing this kind of, um, you know, high theoretical work, you know, Mm -hmm. and that, that combination, it was like in my being, I was um, longing for new narrative and auto theory, though I didn't even know those terms. I wouldn't have recognized those categories at that time. And so, you know, I remember reading uh, Bob Gluck's long note for the new narrative um, and just being like, I, I feel like I make sense to myself, you know, um, and that's, you can find that on the internet. And of course, it's also in the fabulous, always relevant anthology, Biting the Air. Um, and then auto theory and auto theory is a category that finally has visibility in the institution, the academic institution, thanks to women of color and queers 
and, you know, often, you know, feminists, you know, um, and I look at what the, 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 I feel like auto theory's position in the academy is always radical. And I feel very, very grateful for its visibility and those whose labor made that visibility possible. Um, but, you know, it is, this is a, this is a positionality auto theory that values the body as a, you know, valid citational source um, that, um, you know, all, deconstructs and offers alternatives to um, patriarchal structures and, and power structures. And it's just such a, you know, so yeah, so I feel very grateful for new narrative um, movement. I feel very grateful for um, auto theory um, as well in terms of in terms of forms in this moment and how we approach forms in this moment. Yes, me as well. Yeah. There's a line in your long essay and book Rancher that came to mind just now, actually. Um, and I think there's something here about, so there's the body, the, the physical form of, you know, of who we are, the physical form of our creative work, but also the ghosts that haunt us and sort of the ways that we articulate the things that we already know, but have not been said. And also the ways that we see things that are otherwise invisible, kind of without a medium to channel it. And there's a line, you write, words are haunted by bodies and bodies are full of words, which are also ghosts. It is this communion junction that so often undergirds the experience of writing for me. And I wanted to ask you about kind of in the, in the, the details of um, bringing that work to life. Like, what does it look like for you to sort of give form to the things that are hard to see or hard to say, um, particularly when that material is sort of unstable mm -hmm. and difficult to pin down and, and perhaps, um, perhaps rancher as an example, if, if you're comfortable discussing that process. Yes. Gosh, what a wonderful question. And, um, so many, so much comes up for me. I'll try to like, you know, pick one of the threads and follow. But I think in general, my position towards form writing, rancher certainly, is I'm very, and people will laugh who know me because I'm always saying this one quote over and over again that I attribute to Stephen Moore, the great hermeneutics um, religious studies scholar, author of God's Gym and also um, God's Beauty Parlor. Great, great writer. Um, it's a new book out, I believe. Um, but anyway, he talks about this idea of responding in kind and not bringing an analytical jackhammer to a parabolic event, but responding to a, the mystery and an idiom of mystery as a relational, re resonance-filled way of knowing that invites emergence and emergent thinking. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and so I think, you know, when I'm writing a book, it's the sense, it's just the sense too. It's like, how do you know something's a book or a project or an essay or whatever the case may be? I always get this sense that like something has set up shop in like my energetic field. Like it's just suddenly there's a presence there, you know, it's a structure. It's an idea that's kind of gained a kind of weight <laughs> and, um, and so it's like, okay, now I'm going to give form to that. First and foremost, I'm going to give attention to it. Form is a, is a mode of attention. It's a way to give something attention. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I seek to give it attention in the spirit of Stephen Moore's idea of responding in kind. And so, um, you know, and I think that I, writing provides us endless opportunities to practice non-attachment. And that there are those crossroads moments in writing processes where we can relinquish what we thought we were writing, what we hoped we were writing, what we were so sure we were writing, and, and instead receive 
what is the story is actually doing, how it's working through us, what it's what it's doing on the page. And um, and that's a moment where we acknowledge we're collaborating with uncertainty in the mystery and in the process of writing. I love that moment, even though it can be very painful. <laughs> it's like, oh, damn, I thought this novel was about this one thing. Turns out it is about this other thing. Um, hmm. But, you know, so I think that, you know, um, to, to give something form is to give it attention and form, um, you know, how does the form support the content? How does it realize tones tucked within the content? I'm interested in that question as a technician of writing as well. Um, and so, you know, with Rancher, um, you know, that book was such an interesting process. They all, all the books have their own trajectories and they're all interesting and unique. And Rancher kind of began in a space of disassociation. And it was really a space of like language kind of looking like a, like a, I don't know, a firework going off and then gathering into this kind of, um, you know, basket you know, it braided together into this kind of vessel, this shape that could be engaged with. And it involved a lot of research, which was really fun. And, you know, I spent hours and hours and hours. I read whole books about spiders, <laughs> you know, research that doesn't necessarily show up in the very brief, you know, work that it is, but tons of research on Maria Goretti, you know, who's long been a saint that um, I have been familiar with, but really doing the deep dive um, again with her and so on. So, so following these research threads, which just always pinged another place to look. And so this kind of network just acquired visibility just through paying attention. So mm-hmm. Rancher was really born kind of of that space. With your research process, do you feel like you have an intuitive sense of where diversion fits into the process and how it's distinguished from, well, this is an an interesting tension because I think that there's this, this way in which avoidance becomes a part of the form of the book. So for listeners who haven't read it, you start out with this sort of um, statement that you don't know what to say, but there's this event that's going on that involves Black Widow spiders, sort of something that's happening in your social world. And that that um, motif of the Black Widow spider, which initially appears as sort of like a distraction, ends up becoming like a very significant um I don't want to say symbol because it's more than sort of a metaphor, but it becomes sort of a a scaffold that's very meaningful to sort of the field of the essay. Um, And I feel like with a writing process, it can be hard to tell sometimes when a diversion is avoidance of of a less helpful kind versus a surrender to kind of where the process wants to go. So I'd be really curious if you if you have thoughts on that topic. Oh my gosh, Silo. Thank you for that question and for your amazing engagement and reading of, of, of Rancher. I really appreciate your insights. Um, oh my gosh, look, this is ringing all the bells for me. Yes, something I have definitely thought about that fine line where diversion is um, not, it ceases to be poignant, <laughs> shall we say in the work. And so, you know, with Rancher, one thing I, you know, noticed, one thing I wanted to really explore as a person and as a writer was diversion as a position, you know, as its own position, not as an avoidance of a position, but in, but but as you were saying, you know, it, it becomes its own positionality. And, and, um, and I'm particularly interested in how that works for survivors of assault and sexual assault. I think it has a unique meaning um, to to folks who've experienced any sort of sexual trauma, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, and there's also this sense, it's like, okay, I'm in this looped repetition pattern of diverting. 
you know, where I, I want to talk about the trauma, but now I'm talking about, you know, this other thing that leads to this other thing. And it's like, okay, at a certain point, you know, rather than trying to solve or resolve that, I'm going to center that and I'm going to make that the mechanism through which to talk about this type of trauma. And it makes me think of, you know, the nine of pentacles, the bird lady and her idea of skillful will working with what you already have to create the most poignant result or repurposing existing resources to move forward. (laughs) And so, um, so yeah, so rather than trying to, I just was like, I'm going to include the diversions, you know, the diversion is part of the trauma, the ways that, um, uh, schisming or splitting, disassociation. Um, it can be one fracturing the way that the way that that works in trauma. But also, I love what you said. I also think this idea that the diversion, if we lean into it, can become the door we walk through um, into the miracle, right? Into the healed iteration of the wound. Mm-hmm. And so, the Black Widow is a diversion, but it also ends up leading her, the, the narrator, the I that wrote that, right, to herself, to myself. And so, um, yeah. Um, and I think in terms of research, like, okay, but like now I'm researching, am I just, am I just like avoiding the work at the library? You know, is, is this just too much fun, right? And I think the way that I man- handle that is just intuitively, and I think sometimes it's okay to um, a lot of times we're doing deep, hard work and maybe just having fun at the library, jumping down some rabbit holes can be okay some days, actually. I think we need to be kind to ourselves. We are doing deep work. But I, I would say that how I monitor when a diversion is like positive versus like I'm avoiding the work is it feels good to my system. I'm just like, yeah, there, there's just, there's so it feels good to my system to be with a spark. So intuitive perhaps. Yeah. Which reminds me of what you said at the beginning of our conversation, sort of about um, a position. So it's like, you're honoring that position, whatever form that takes. It's not about outward evidence of productivity necessarily. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it is about tracking um, a shimmering thread in pursuit of understanding, which doesn't mean resolving or solving. So, yeah, and as you said, to the failure to sort of keep a firm grasp on what we think the thread is is also a part of how those portals open up. You know, yeah. possibility. Um, Something I've been curious about for uh, as as one of as a reader of yours is your relationship to plot, because I feel like what we're discussing also relates to the narrative arc of our own relationship to a project, and I think flexible narrative or literary structures allow for that to be folded in, you know, and allow for those divergences perhaps to also be a part of the spongy sort of structure that we're working in. Mm -hmm. Um, But when you're writing a novel, how does plot inform perhaps your, your process or the way that you shape the work? Do do you, yeah. Or what is your relationship to plot? What do you think about plot? Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah. I was just talking with my students yesterday about plot the conundrum, um, the conundrum of plot. Um, I love plot. I just love the word plot. It just feels like good in, in, in the inner sanctum of the mouth, right? Okay. And, right. I, and the way I approach plot is, is, is kind of through first, it's the paradigm, the concept, right? I think of the grave plot. So I think of the ancestors and I think of land, a plot of land and the nuances and complexities around that. Um, And so, you know, tied up in this idea of plot are immediately just those associations for me. Um, But I think what I often feel is, is I think of C.D. Wright 
And I'm recalling here from like the 90s. Oh my gosh. Um, and a, a, an interview she gave in Poets and Writers. And she was asked something along the lines of how do you keep writing such great books? Which fair question, we, you know, we all wanted to know, right? And she, her response was, you know, it's not about writing better. It's about seeing better. And I think about being a seer, one who sees. And, you know, and this idea too, that she and others have also talked about, right? That um, narrative can happen anywhere that the conditions are conducive for an eruption. So thinking of like the weed that flowers, that breaks through the concrete crack and the interstate bypass, right? It's like, it's like narrative is, right? And so I guess, um, and, you know, just in terms of my approach to plot, to plot, and those things are kind of in my mind, (laughs) I suppose, that plot is everywhere all the time. It's wherever the potential for for relation exists or interaction exists. Um, It's wherever interpretation might happen, you you know, um, as well, as well. And so anyway, um, yeah, plot. So that's kind of maybe the energetic portrait (laughs) that I kind of carry around perhaps. But I think you know, for me, um, the books, like I'm thinking, for example, of Slab, what is the plot of that book? Well, there's an event and the event is that there has been a disaster and then there is um, a response to the disaster. <laughs> and that's the plot, you know, so the the plots aren't complicated. Um, you know, they're they're pretty bare bones but it's about the proliferation that happens at the site of those, those junctures of, you know, of, of action. Mm. Um, Very beautiful way to think about plot. I also think too of a a card reading, how there's many little narratives that the reading as an architecture can hold. Uh, your work holds holds those many layers of narrative yeah I mean I think card reading has been my greatest writing teacher and card reading is a narrative art it is about the juxtaposition of archives and potential stories (laughs) that might rise um, to to greet an occasion in, in a way that is can be quite profound, I would suggest. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I often say that, you know, a deck of cards is an unfixed anthology. It's like it's table of contents or it's like musical chairs. It's always shifting, you know, but furthermore, there's 78 chapters in that book and each of those chapters is endless. So it's, it's a marvelous sort of text and instructive for those of us who are writers in my in my view. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Um, I want to ask you about, and this is perhaps returning to my opening question, but the day-to-day work of holding these different practices and parts of self. So the creative writer, the diviner, the academic, um, and in particular, kind of finding agency and holding, um, staying grounded in one's own relationship to the work. Because I feel like a lot of your creative work is invested in healing and community and a certain ethics of being in the world. And I think those things are not always facilitated by academic institutions as, um, yeah, I I think that there's perhaps like a a theoretical level of this question of like the approach, the attitude Mm -hmm. to being a creative person in the world, in this world. Mm -hmm. And then also the, the day-to-day kind of carving out space or holding kind of 
conceptual or psychic boundaries around certain obligations in order to inhabit that approach or that attitude. Thank you. That is a great question. It's a very big question. And I, there's, I had, there's so many responses to, to it for me that come up for me. So I'll try to just track a couple that maybe will be, um, I don't know, resonant. You know, I want to say that, you know, these aspects of myself, the creative writer, the divine or the academic, that it is not always, it has been, you know, that again, to refer back to that learning curve I mentioned earlier, how to feel integrated um, with these intersections of, uh, you know, that, that, that constitute my being inside of the institution. And it has been trial and error. It has at times been painful. It is, it is at times just been, you know, kind of closeted. It is, it's, it's, it's looked all sorts of ways. I have experimented with many, many combinations and, um, and I had to find my own mentors and I did. And, you know, and I also have had some extraordinary colleagues that have modeled visionary approaches to being academics and being in the world. I think of Eleni Sicilianos, I think of Laird Hunt, I think of Julie Carr, I think of my colleagues here in Denver who um, in so many ways really modeled ways to engage with the institution. Um, and it, anyway, but but I have to say that like um, I just have kind of given up on trying, again, this idea of trying to control my how I'm perceived um, in, in within the institution, and which doesn't mean I, I don't make certain choices about how I'm perceived. I totally do. But but I just, I guess I feel those categories, creative writer, divine or academic, they just are eru- the, the kind of eruptions that have happened between their cordoned off areas. They just, they're just kind of free flowing now. Um, they, um, yeah, there's a cross pollination there. And so I'm not trying in the same ways to keep to con- to control my image or to keep them separate in the institutional space. Um, and I would say personally, um, one thing that I notice about being a creative writer, being a diviner, being an academic, all of those things are deeply inform one another in my personal experience of those aspects of myself. They're all intertwined. Um, but before I teach a class, I will say an internal simple prayer or invocation, which is along the lines of may I be more than my fears, limitations, and distractions. You know, it's not an original prayer to me, one that was shared by a teacher long ago, one that my mother um, was fond of. Um, and I say the same thing before I do a reading. And I'll say the same thing like for a client with, you know, cards or a community member with cards. I say the same thing before I do a reading, before I get up and read a chapter of my book at a literary event. You know, I say the same thing before a lot of different moments. And so I just, I notice that the approach is what connects those vectors. Um, and so in terms, I want to say one thing too about, you know, you talked about um, finding your agency in the institutional space. And, you know, for me, um, my experience is like I got to academics and I finally kind of got a level of survival for myself. It's like, okay, you know, I'm going to have a paycheck. I'm going to have health insurance, you know, and um, and it was like there was this stability after you not, you know, not there not being stability. And it was kind of like, okay, finally, I can like rest. And then that's when all the stuff comes up. It's like, oh, you know, to be healed. I didn't expect that, you know. And um, so for me, the restoration of my agency, which is healing my relationship with authority figures and institutions, really began with healing from trauma in my childhood. You know, healing from the trauma of sexual assault. You know, the restoration, because in those any any instance where people are women, you know, or femme identifieds are not believed, the disbelief of one's proclamation will separate one from their agency. 
right? And so the restoration of agency for me has been about healing from the pain of not being believed. And so when that restoration happened, I had a very different relationship with the institution and I had new boundaries with the institution. So, um, and that's of course a work in progress, but, but I just, the restoration of one's agency, um, I think is, is deeply connected to, to healing. And I think that the institution will trigger unhealed material. I think for sure. So yeah, some thoughts towards your great question. <laughs> My mountain of several questions. Awesome questions. Thank you for that. Um, I think we're going to start to wrap up. Um, but before we move on to our sort of final closure, um, kind of piggybacking on that original behemoth of a question, um, any thoughts you might share around maintaining well-being, creative and spiritual well-being as a writer, particularly amidst the clamor and clutter of co competitiveness in literary worlds? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, that's such a great question. And you know what, I just also want to acknowledge um, to your questions about how to stay safe in the institution, how to be a visionary in institutional spaces. And I want to say it's, it's the timing of these questions is so interesting. I mean, it would feel disingenuous not to mention it, in fact. <laughs> but I, this June, as I mentioned, will be 18 years that I've been at the University of Denver. And seven of those years, I directed uh, the creative writing program. And just this past week, a few days ago, I began the exit process. So I am, after 18 years, um, I am leaving full-time academia. And um, I, as I'm leaving as a full professor, the only woman and only queer full professor in my department. And, um, and I hope that changes. Um, and it's very important that that, sh that shifts. Um, but yeah, so I'm going to be going, I'm going to still have one foot in the academic world. And I'm excited about those teaching opportunities and, and whatnot. And, um, and visiting writer positions, love, love the types of engagement that, that comes from the benefits of one of the benefits of this institutional spaces, right? Um, but I'm going to be going into private consulting and coaching work. And so I'm very excited. So I just, it would feel like in light of those very profound questions you ask about the institution, I must also say that I have decided to yet again, experiment with my relationship to it. And so I'll be in the sense that I will be, um, this will be, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm moving on from the University of Denver. And so I'm contracted to teach one more class. So I will come back to Denver next spring quarter, teach that class. I'm hoping it will be on divination. <laughs> and then um, and then and then my contract will be officially done. So so anyway, so that's an interesting kind of um, just coincidence to your to your questions. Um, but in terms of advice about the literary world, be feeling safe in the literary world, right? And not the, the clamor of competitiveness and how all of that works. And my encouragement there would be just like, don't lose yourself in fields of bland absences. The engagement with the mystery that creates the work, the work being a kind of artifact, um, signaling back to that engagement. Um, that is, is, is the work and, and the visitations that are our poems or our stories, they can only be uniquely nuanced through, through, through us, through our beings. And the mystery is collaborating with those stories through us to become manifest in the world. And so it's just like, keep your eyes on your own lane. You know, make sure your own house is in order and take pleasure where you can. Um, and don't get lost in the field of bland absences, which is comparison and pettiness 
And, you know, cause all that's identity stuff. None of that shit's going to make you a better writer. If, if talking about, of talking about other writers made us better writers, we'd all be like amazing, writers, <laughs> you know? And so it's just, it's not going to help you be a better writer. Um, and so, yeah. And have good boundaries. I think that's, you know, I think that's important. Um, also. Well, Sila, thank you for that. Um, excellent advice and congratulations on the exciting news and chapter new adventures. Um, before we pull our card, would you want to tell listeners how they might work with you or where they might find you, particularly since it sounds like um, you might be creating some new offerings? Yes, thank you for that question. So right now I I run a platform with Kristen Nelson and it's called Four Queens, fourqueens.org. And it is a platform that celebrates divinatory poetics. So creative arts conjuncting with oracular inclinations. Um, we offer a variety of programming. We have a literary series, reading series um, that's just been amazing. We have creative writing classes. We have divinatory poetics classes. We have divination classes. Right now at the moment, behind the scenes, we're, we're doing a really big kind of um, switching platforms and, and just kind of doing a big overhaul. So in August, September, we'll be relaunching Four Queens with a bunch of new programming. So right now, what the programming we do, two Sundays a month, at 11 a.m. Mountain Time for one hour, we gather to do a divinatory poetics hour. And we have different gods. We've had the most marvelous folks lead these hours. And so we just say, come receive the prompts right. It's basically a generative writing class. Um, you don't have to share. It's not a workshop. Those are $10 and it supports our queer scholarship fund at Four Queens. So we run those two, um, two times a month and you'll find that under calendar and events and in, in the Sunday um, section. And we also do, Kristen and I do, and the first Sunday of every month, a community divination. Um, and that's a, a circle of folk who just get together. Krista and I each give about a 15 minute forecast for the month ahead. And then we take questions and those can be anonymous and private or they can be public. And so we're doing that, staying on with that programming. And then um, next fall, launching some very exciting new programming along with our new platform. So I'm super excited. And so people can um, connect with me through Four Queens. I also offer divination sessions. Um, they are booked through there and coaching sessions. So anyway, so most so I can be so I can be found in the in Four Queens realm for sure. And um, yeah. Well I will definitely share the link for Four Queens in the show notes and can vouch for um, just the richness of the four queens offerings and um, have gotten so much out of them myself. Mm, thank you so much. Um, thank you for being such a wonderful uh, light of brilliance who's a part of that community for sure. And um, so, yes, thank you for your presence in, in those spaces. And thank you for this wonderful conversation. It's been really fun. I really appreciate the questions and um, will continue to answer them in my head long after this conversation is done, I'm sure. <laughs> I'll be thinking about your answers, I think, for a while. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I got so much out of this. Um, so to, to close out, I was thinking we could each pull a card or some cards. Um, a theme that emerged for me for this reading would be... Um, those of us who are perhaps at our own kind of crossroads around creative work, perhaps around identity, um, and especially where letting go is in order, some kind of letting go or surrender. Yes, I love it. I love it. Okay, how fun. I love that we're doing this. Okay, I have my cards out. I'm going to take a moment. Just see what pops. I'll pour back. Hmm. 
Okay. Do you have your cards? It's still, it's still popping out. Yeah. Take, yeah, take your time. Oh, hello. <laughs> oh my gosh. I love it. I love it. Will you, will you restate what we're pulling cards on? Just um, yes. it's an invocation here. Yeah. Letting go, particularly um, around creative work and identity mm. or creative work and identity as letting go maybe in order. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah. Okay. I've got my cards ready at any point. I've got a, a death. <laughs> it feels like the easy, the easy <laughs> card to, to respond to, but um, I think for me, this is always a sign that letting go is the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There are things on the other side of that. Mm-hmm. So what we allow to come to life by shedding something um, and that shedding isn't just like the objects we hold, but sort of the the clothes we wear or um, the identities or roles that we inhabit. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you um, would want to add anything to that. I love that. I love that. I love that read of the death card. And, you know, as you were sharing, I'm just reminded that like, you know, this comforting idea that letting go is the right thing. I think of when the flower releases the bloom, when it begins to acquire the visage of death, but it's actually in perfect time, you know, mm-hmm. it's following its cycle and it's like, it's okay to, to, to let go. It's really just, a, it was nice to make contact with that aspect of the death card. So yeah. And I think too, especially like the seed of light that is inside. So like the, there's a child, um, mm-hmm. weight rendition, um, or Pamela Coleman Smith rendition of the card where it's sort of like the, the inner child mm-hmm. is the portal or the pathway to follow. Mm-hmm. I love that. and believe that. You know, I believe that, uh, and I really think of the sun card through the inner child and that in that figure in the death card of the Pamela Coleman Smith iteration of the card. And yeah, it's like the inner child keeps the flame of wonder alive on, you know, the altar of the heart. And it's wonder that connects us to curiosity and makes us feel engaged, you know? And so I love thinking of the inner child as a path. Um, that resonates for me. And, you know, the thing too, about the death card, it's just like another thing I appreciate about it. It's just like, yeah, change comes for all of us. Change will happen. Change is happening. But knowing that the agency is located in deciding how you want to react to that change. Mm -hmm. That that's like also empowering to remember. It's exactly what you said too, about some of your pivotal experiences having to do with on a more literal level kind of that seismic change of of loss yeah right right for sure yeah. um, well that is so appropriate for for uh for for this for this card reading so i got the five of pentacles conjuncting with the world and i love i mean this is a powerful conjunction and in my practice it's a pretty straightforward message and the message that kind of emerges from this conjunction, the, one of the primary tones that I'm kind of feeling here is you have to give up your old life for your new life sometimes. You know, you have to let something die so something can be born. And that can include aspects of your identity. It can include all sorts of things, right? But just this idea that, you know, sometimes, um, that there's a connection between death and rebirth um, in a big way when it comes to um, our identity and um, and the ways that our life can look, you know? So yeah, I just feel it's like, okay, the, the, the loss of this life 
means the birth of this life and, yeah. and just feeling the rich spectrum of that truth. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Hopeful. <laughs> a real joy. Oh, such a joy. Thank you so much for this lovely conversation on this beautiful spring morning. It's been a real pleasure and a privilege. Likewise. So that's the show. Um, Thanks so much for listening. I hope that you enjoyed that conversation with Sila. Um, If there were any writers or things that were mentioned that you want to revisit, you can check out a list in the show notes. Um, There's also a link to a transcript. Um, A special thank you to Ethan Camp of Aquarian Studios for help with audio. And if you like this episode, I really think you would like Four Queens events. So check out their website. And um, again, feel free to share this episode with a friend. I will be back with more conversations like this one later this summer. So stay tuned. Um, And I look forward to being with you again soon. Keep writing, creating, and taking good care of yourself until then.